Jesus was born 2,000 years ago to get messy. And prayer is his calling to us to take the mess that we are and the stickiness in that mess that we are and touch him. And when we do, we discover that he didn't pull back from us. He doesn't say, don't touch me with the mess that you are. He says, go on ahead and touch me. I don't mind getting messy with your mess. And then prayer becomes for us an opportunity for us to rehearse His mercy and His greatness. Because as we, in our mess, touch Jesus, Jesus touches us. And as Jesus touches us, yes, He gets sticky with our mess. But we begin to be changed by His mercy and His greatness. You'll turn with me this morning, your Bibles, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Mary, the mother of Jesus, after having received the message from the angel Gabriel that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah, begins in a calm and majestic way to offer a meditation like a prayer of who Jesus is going to be. And in this meditation... She is really saying, he's coming. He's coming to get messy. He's coming to touch us. And when he touches us, we will begin to rehearse his mercy and his greatness. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. We saw last week in verses 46 through 49 of this meditation of Mary's that she basically says, look at what God has done And look at what God is getting ready to do. The prayer here is modeled after the Psalms and the prayer of Hannah and 1 Samuel. Its focus, of course, is the Lord. She says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. And the idea is that my soul makes great the Lord. And what she's essentially saying is, When I look at what God has done, and when I look at what I anticipate the Lord's going to do through this son that's going to be born to me, he fills up more of my soul. He fills up more of who I am. You see, one of the greatest mistakes we often make with Jesus is we get a little bit of experience with him, and we think we've got all of Jesus there is to experience. That's the greatest mistake we can ever make, folks. Experiencing the glory and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ is something that we will do if we choose to throughout this life and then through eternity. After we go to heaven, we are never going to get bored with Jesus. Every day in heaven is going to be another opportunity to discover more of of who He is as we worship Him. But every day this side of heaven is more of an experience, more of an opportunity to experience more of who He is. She says in verse 48, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. God uses humble people. He cannot use proud people. Humility sees the future of what the Lord is doing and recognizes what he is going to accomplish in the future. Now let's look at Luke chapter 1 verses 50 through 52. And his mercy, that is God's mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. We've been looking at the prayers of Christmas. This prayer of Mary's is, again, an example of rehearsing what God in His mercy and His power does when He touches our sticky, messy lives. Now, all the verbs that are used in the verses that I just read are in what in Greek is called the prophetic past tense. And this is how it works. The prophetic past tense means that the writer looks ahead into the future, sees what God is going to do, and then says, you can just count it as done. And so all these verbs in our English are in the past tense. It hasn't happened yet, but when God says He's going to do something, you can just mark it down like it's already been done. That is the idea of what she's saying here with the tense that she's using here. Consider it done. It's what's called a historic prophetic form of speech. In other words, she's looking back at what the Lord has done. She's looking presently at what God is doing, and then she's looking into the future at what God is going to do, and she just puts it all in the past tense because she's saying what God says He's going to do is just as true as what God has already done. In fact, what He's already done guarantees what He's going to be doing in the future. Now, the first thing she says in verse 50 is that God has great mercy. God has great mercy. Notice her words there in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, what is the mercy of God? We sing about mercy in our hymns and in our songs. We see it sprinkled throughout the Bible. But what is the mercy of God? Mercy is God's compassion in action. Mercy is compassion in action. And it's a fascinating word that he uses here, she uses here, because it means that it's literally mercy from the gut. The idea is that you see somebody who is in need, who is miserable, who is struggling, who is suffering. Someone who can do absolutely nothing for themselves to get themselves out of the mess that they are in. And you see that and you are so moved by that, you say, i got to do something about it. But then you look inside yourself and you see that you are totally adequate to meet the need in that person's life. So you reach down inside yourself and you take action and you take initiative and you go to them and you meet their need and you meet them where they are and you restore them and you work with them and you do whatever you got to do to help them out. His mercy is good from generation to generation. Now, what does His mercy do? When God sees us and He sees the needs in our lives, when Jesus looks at our messy, sticky lives, what does He do? Let me give you three ideas. Number one, He sustains us. In other words, he comes to us and he says, I'll walk with you, I'll hold your hand, I'll be there right with you. I will give you the strength to get through the moment, to get through the hour, to get through the day. I will sustain you. All of us are going to go through some times in life when we wonder, can I get one foot in front of the other? And Jesus says, we'll walk this together. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
We're going to have some days we wonder when we get up in the morning, am I going to get through the day? We're going to have some nights that we're going to lay in the bed or in the emergency room or wherever and going to wonder, can I see, can I make it till the next morning? Whatever it is that we are facing, He is there and He says His mercy means He sustains us. Second, His mercy means He forgives us. And the idea of forgiveness in the Bible is that He sets us free. And so when He forgives us in His mercy, He is setting us free from sin. He is setting us free from guilt. And He is setting us free from shame. And third, His mercy means that He is trying and He is working to make us into something according to His will. Now I want you to follow me on this. Often when we think of the mercy of God, we, we look at it and we understand it just one side of it. That God looks at us and He says, yeah, you blew it, you screwed up, you messed up, so I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to cut you some slack, and I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to judge you here because of my mercy. That's all true. But mercy doesn't stop there. A lot of times we stop there. God, I need your mercy. And He says, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to set you free, and I'm going to cut you some slack. And then we say, thank you, Jesus, and then we go on. And He says, wait a minute. I just got started. Mercy just got started in your life. Because you see, mercy is not just about cleaning us up. Mercy is about building us. It's about restoring us. It's about making us into a new person. It's about us not having to come back and ask forgiveness from the same sin over and over and over again. It's about building in us so we get liberation. So I don't have to keep asking for forgiveness from the same sin because Jesus has set me free from that sin. And Jesus has built fortitude in me that I don't fall back in the same mess over and over again. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to... 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to look verses 9 and 10 because this shows us what the mercy of God does in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, notice what Peter says receiving mercy means. Verse 9. And he uses this concept over and over again in these two verses. He says, you're a chosen race. You're God's people. How does he build us up? He says, I chose you. I claimed you. I own you. I bought you with my son's blood. We didn't choose him he chose us. Sometimes people say, I'm so messed up and I'm so sinful, I'm so screwed up, God could never want me or use me. That's not your decision to make. That was God's decision to make. He chose you. In spite of the mess, He chose you. When my son was born, and he's not here today so I can say this about it, the first thing he did was blow out 
the diaper and everything else that was in the labor and delivery room. I mean, I stood there and I go, oh, that's my boy. And about that time, it was Explosion City all over the place. And I said, well, he's relieved. There's no question about that. Now, I did not look at my son at that point and say, good gracious, you're the messiest, stinkingest infant I ever laid my eyes on. I don't think I want you. I don't want to think I want to take you home with me. If this is just the beginning of what we're going to be going through, you can just stay here at the hospital as far as I'm concerned. I want me a nice neat Gerber baby. I don't want some baby blowing his diaper out every 10 minutes, etc., etc. <laughs> well, we got home, and I mean, he was blowing him diapers out on a regular basis. I said, man, I can't wait till he starts using toilet paper, because at least that way I'm going to save, you know, toilet paper's a whole lot cheaper than diapers are. point I'm trying to make is this. I didn't look at my son and love him any less, say that he was less a member of our family because he was messing his diaper up and everything around him. And so many times when we mess up, we think God doesn't want us anymore, doesn't love us anymore. God knew what he was getting into when he chose us. God knew the messes we were going to make. That's why I did an over-clean job on the cross and in the resurrection to get ready for the messes that we were going to make. So he says, I've chosen you. But then he goes on from that. He says, you are a royal priesthood. And what does he mean by that? He means that because of Jesus, we got the right as believers in him, as priests, to walk into his presence, stand in his presence, get a direct audience with the Lord God Almighty, and talk to him. Not because we're such good religious people, but because we come in the name of Jesus, his son, and we come in the work that Jesus did on the cross. I'm a preacher I've been to divinity school and all of that. But when I stand in the presence of God, I don't claim my master of divinity degree. I don't claim that I've been a preacher. I have to come like all the rest of you. And I have to stand there and claim the same thing. Lord, I'm here because I'm yours because of Jesus. I'm here because Jesus loved me and saved me and cleansed me with his blood. And I can get an audience with you because of what your son did. I can have a relationship with you. You're a royal priesthood, he says. You're a holy nation. He's going to clean us up. He's going to convict us of sin. He's going to make sure that we walk closely with Him and we are miserable if we are not walking closely with Him. Back in the 1960s, my dear mother was into antiquing big time. She loved to go to these antique shops and buy the ugliest looking furniture I've ever seen in my life and work with it. She just loved to pick that ugly stuff out. And she went to an antique shop one Sunday afternoon and she got a washstand. Now, any, how many of y'all know what a washstand is, okay? All right, well, more than I thought. Okay. Washstand was this great big old stand, and it had a, was made out of beautiful wood. All oh, that time it was a mess. It had a marble top on it. In the old days, they used to take these great big pans of water and put them on top, and that's where you washed your face and, in some cases, washed your body. They didn't, going back, way back, they didn't have bathtubs and all that kind of stuff. So they called it a washstand. Well, my mother got a washstand, but the washstand had been used as a paint stand. Somebody had taken that thing and put their paint on it, and there was paint all over the marble surface. There was paint all over the wood. It was a mess. And my mother bought that thing. I used to look at my mother bringing man messy antiques. Some of the woman had lost her mind. She put that thing in the basement, and she went to work on it. I mean, she went to work on it. She got Clorox out on that marble, and she did a number on it. 
When she got through with it, you wouldn't believe the beauty of the wood that was in on that stand when she got all that paint off of it. Then she got all that paint off of the marble, and the marble was absolutely gorgeous. Then she took that thing from the basement, and she put it in our living room. And wherever she has lived since then, and this goes back about 40-plus years, if you walk in wherever she happens to live, she's in an apartment now, that washstand is center focus. And if you ask her about it, ooh, she's going to brag about it and tell you in detail what she did to clean that thing up. In fact, in the early years, you didn't have to ask her. She said, this is my washstand, and it was a paint stand, and it was a mess, and this is what I did. Clean that thing up. When it talks about us being a holy nation, about belonging to the Lord, and about the mercy of God, this is the idea. We got the paint of sin and guilt and shame of our screw-ups and mess-ups and waywardness from God splattered all over us. We get ourselves in messes, and we look like a mess. And what God did in Jesus in making us his own is he said, You are a mess, but I'm going to buy you with my blood. And then I'm going to take you and I'm going to start cleaning you up. And when I get through cleaning you up, I'm going to put you on display. Because I want people to see that you've been called out of darkness into my marvelous light. I want people to see what happens when I get my hands on somebody. When my mercy and my greatness touches the life. When I begin to scrub you and work on you and work you over and I begin to clean you up. And you see, the reason he does that is not so we can walk around and say, man, how great I am. It's so we can walk around and people can look at us and say, that is what Jesus does in a life. That's what Jesus' freedom looks like. That's what Jesus' cleansing looks like. That's what Jesus' restoration and rebuilding looks like. Now, notice what he says next. He says, you have the mercy of God from generation to generation. He just keeps on doing his work. And then continuing in verse 50. His mercy is for those excuse me, who fear him. In other words, the key to experiencing what I've just talked about is the fear of God. His mercy is for those who fear Him. Now, what is the fear of God? It is a respect for God. It is a reverential respect for God. It means to stand in awe of God. Now, I want you to follow everything I'm going to say right now about the the fear of God. First of all, the fear of God is to fear His judgment and to fear His punishment. Now, forgive me for using a parenting illustration, but when my mother was raising me, I loved her, I respected her, but I was also in fear of her own times. I knew if I went out and, and messed up and disobeyed her, there was going to be punishment. I'm going to get off the hook. And when I was a parent raising my son, I love my son, and my son knows I love him, give everything in the life for him, but he also knew that if he cross the line, there were going to be consequences. There was going to be a judgment day. In fact, most cases, he didn't have to, I mean, he'd just come up to me and confess because he knew it was coming. He was going to be worse if I found out through the, you know, the cycle. Now, folks, the, the, the fear of God does mean that if we don't repent and get right with God, there's going to be a judgment day. I know that's not a popular thing to talk about and preach about. But the love of God does not mean that we just go out here and sin at will and we get off 
free. There is going to be a judgment day if we don't repent. There is going to be the judgment of God and the correction of God and the discipline of the Lord if we don't get right with Him. But it goes on from that because the fear of God also means that we love Him and we hunger for Him. And when I fear God, I serve Him. I live in obedience to His commandments. I try to walk in His wisdom, in particular in the book of Proverbs. I trust Him and I learn to hate and avoid evil as I fall in love with Him deeper and deeper every day. Now, there is a place of the fear of God, and I want you to hear me on this, where we don't do some stuff. Not because, you know, we just haven't reached the place yet of saying, Jesus, I'm not going to do this because I'm scared I'm going to get, you know, nuked if I do. There's a place that it's there. I mean, there's some things that all of us want to do just about every day that we know in our gut is wrong and God in His Word says it's wrong and we can't wait till we feel all kinds of nice warm feelings for Jesus. We just got to say, I ain't going to do this, excuse my English, because the Bible says that if I do it, I'm going to get punished. Okay, when I was growing up, I did not wait till I had warm feelings for my parents before I didn't do some stuff. I knew if I did some stuff and it was wrong, there was punishment coming in my direction and so I just didn't do it for that reason. And you know something? I'm thankful for that. I avoid a lot of junk because I was scared half to death. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? And having a good, healthy fear of God in that way, if it keeps us out of trouble, but that's not where the Lord wants it to end. Where He wants to grow us and take us is that we don't do the wrong and we do what's right because we love Jesus. And we want to please Him, and we want to walk in His goodness, and we want to walk closer to him. You see, as I got older as a child, as we get older, if we're maturing, what we say is, I'm not doing this because I'm scared my parents are going to find out. It's because I respect my parents and I love my parents and I don't want to break my parents' heart. That's the reason I'm not doing it. And that's where God wants to take us. And folks, we cannot have a relationship with the Lord if we don't fear Him. That fear of God is essential to a relationship with Him. Notice what he says, verse 50. It is from generation to generation. I love that. We can pass a legacy of mercy to our children that will go on to the next generation. We can pass that legacy on. Now, notice in verses 51 and verse 52, it speaks here about the great power of God, rehearsing His power. He has shown strength With his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The word arm there, the arm of God, you will see this expression used repeatedly in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, the arm of God. It speaks of power toward a purpose. Power toward a purpose. In other words, God doesn't arbitrarily use his power. He has a purpose for which he uses his power. In the history of the nation of Israel, God took his powerful arm and he reached down when the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. He took them out of Egypt. He took them through the wilderness and he delivered them into the promised land. That would have been on Mary's mind as she talked about his arm. But then she looked at this baby that was going to be born, that was going to grow up, that was going to be the Messiah. 
His arm, the arm of God through Jesus. As Jesus healed people, as Jesus taught people, there was the arm of God, the purpose that was there. As he raised people from the dead, there was the arm of God. When God stretches out his arm, there is always a purpose. When God stretches out his power, there is always a purpose in his power. And when he stretched out his arms on the cross and died and shed his blood and gave up his life and allowed his arms to be nailed to the cross, there was a purpose. And the purpose purpose was you. The purpose was to change us. The purpose was to make us his own. Now, notice what it says here. Verse 51, it says, He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. The word proud there means to be arrogant. It means to plot and to scheme to perpetrate what I want done. He says he's scattered that. Remember back in the Old Testament when old Pharaoh who was ruling Egypt and was the greatest monarch on the face of the earth at that time had a dream and he couldn't interpret the dream and he was freaking out about the dream and all day long this dream was going on in his mind and he was going crazy after a while. God was scattering the proud in his thoughts. And so finally he heard about this guy named Joseph. We looked at it, this story back during the summer. And he said, send Joseph up here because i got to get some answers. My magicians aren't getting the job done. I can't get the job done. i got to have somebody who says they're in touch with this guy that I don't know anything about. But he sounds like he knows what he's doing. And Joseph went up there and Joseph said, give me the dream. And then Joseph said, hey, God's got the answer to this. And he began to give him the dream. And he took all those scattered crazy thoughts and laid it right out there as to what God was doing. He has scattered the proud. Verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Every power in the Old Testament, sooner or later, got brought down. By the time Jesus was born, Alexander the Great was history, and the Greek Empire was history. But at one point, it looked like it was going to rule everything. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. But all of us have got some thrones that we sit on. There are the places in our lives where we really don't think we need God. They're the places in our lives that we don't invite Jesus into. And that's our throne room. And he knows how to bring us down. And he will act to bring us down. And it's not going to be fun. And we don't enjoy it. But he's doing it for a purpose. I cannot know his mercy and I cannot know his greatness as long as I'm sitting on a throne and Jesus isn't. In the places in our lives where we are the least prayerful are the places in our lives where we're sitting on the throne and Jesus isn't. You see, when I look at places in my life where I'm on the throne, those are the places where I'm not praying over that. And I'm not consulting the Word of God over that. Confession's always good for the soul. One of my, one of my thrones is worry. 
I get on things and I start worrying and I just get fixated on it and get fixated on the worry. And as I do that, I start trying to figure out how I'm going to fix it. And I'm not praying. And I'm not relying on the Word of God. I'm just getting myself all tore up. And the Lord has to bring me back and say, you know, you got to trust me with this. And you got to trust my presence and my power with this. And you got to let me handle this. you got to let me take this and run with this. Whatever it is, folks, in our lives that we're not praying over, we haven't committed to Jesus, that's where we got a throne set up in our lives. Sometimes it's the places where we get hurt in life. Sometimes it's the places where we feel inadequate in life. Sometimes it's places of sin that if we're really honest, we enjoy it and we want to get down on it and we don't want Jesus coming in that room in our life. And Jesus says to us, if you belong to me, that throne has got to go and if you won't take it out, I'm going to take it out. Now you can take it out and it'll be easier, but if you force me to have to take it out and then I could be a whole lot of fun, but the throne is going one way or another, I will take out those thrones. Humble yourself, the Bible says, 1 Peter 5, 6, so that he may exalt you. Do you remember the story Jesus told in the book of Luke we call the Good Samaritan? Samaritan's coming down the road, and there's a guy who's gotten beaten up by thieves, and he's laying in the ditch. And the Samaritan stops and he gets off his donkey or wherever he's riding and he goes down in the ditch, pulls the guy out, bandages him up, takes him to an inn, pays for that guy to get whatever he needs. Jesus was saying several things in that story, but one of the things he was saying to us is this, you all that I'm talking to, you the guy in the ditch, You've been beat up by a thief whether you realize it or not. Because sin and guilt and shame and temptation are all thieves. And they ambush us and tear us up and leave us in the ditch. And do you realize what that, that guy in the ditch and hot Palestinian son must have been like? You talk about messy and sticky And can you imagine when the Samaritan got down in the ditch and picked him up? You can't pick up a beat up, bleeding, pulse, stinky person without getting the stink on you. Without getting the blood on you. By the time the Samaritan got the guy on the donkey and got him to the inn and got him in a bed, he was probably looking about as bad and smelling about as bad as the guy he'd been helping out. But that's mercy, and that's power, and that changed a life. Let's pray.